Welcome to Opt In with April Jasper. Relevant conversations about topics important to eye care providers today. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. Welcome everyone, I'm Dr. April Jasper and I'm so excited to be joined today on our podcast by Laura Cusack. Hello, good morning. Thank you for being here, Laura. We so appreciate it. I think back to the time I first met you and uh, one of our next guests, Bonnie Jo Daniels, introduced me to you. And I was so impressed with your passion for the subject that we're talking about today. And for our listeners, the subject today is we want to have actually a two-part series. This is part one of this two-part series highlighting the problem of human trafficking and what we need to know to be able to identify a victim and help them on their journey to survival. So before we get started, tell our listeners and viewers a little bit more about yourself, Laura. Sure. Well, so excited to be here. Um, I am currently the president of the Human Trafficking Coalition of the Palm Beaches, so a local nonprofit that works with education awareness and outreach here in Palm Beach County. Um, Previously, I worked in foster care, um, placing foster youth in foster homes, licensing those homes. Also did outreach, ran an outreach program um, for missing children. So we'd go to hotels, pass out missing children flyers, ask for tips, you know, from the hotel staff that we could then pass on to law enforcement. Um, Also have worked on the demand side. So working, um, running groups with men who've been arrested for buying sex. Um, And that was a really cool aspect. Really enjoyed that work. Um, And so I feel like, yeah, I've kind of seen this issue with human trafficking from different sides, worked to educate different um, industries on this issue. And just so excited to be here to talk more. I love it. I love the fact that you're so passionate about it. I love the the uh, fact that you bring awareness to a subject that I think a lot of people aren't aware of. I'd love to have our listeners kind of think about this for a minute. I wonder how many of them know that there are more people enslaved today than at any other time in history. And if they even understand, because I didn't, that human trafficking is the illegal trade of human beings, the recruitment control and use of people for their bodies and their labor. I uh, can tell you that, and Bonnie Joe's heard this, but some of my history of understanding this, we are, our optical is right here on Belvedere and Dixie. And there used to be a shop called Shop 561 that was there. And I would go in and Janelle, the owner of the shop, would have signs that said that a portion of the proceeds were going to fight the cause against human trafficking. And I remember going in there for, you know, months and seeing those signs and being very uncomfortable and thinking, why does she have these signs up? There's no such thing anymore. And I should know better. I should have known and I didn't. And I think it took me a year to actually bring up the subject because it was so odd and uncomfortable for me. 
And so hopefully what we do today is educate, but also help people to know that they can't stop something that they won't talk about, right? Absolutely. And I think that's the cool part about awareness is that you're empowering people to, you know, take that step. It's a lot. And what you're describing, that experience is not uncommon. We hear that from people all the time that it's just really overwhelming to think about um, happening right here. And so, you know, we, we hope to, you know, empower, educate, and then give people resources of how they can help. So I thought maybe the way we could start this, because I've heard it done before by you, is to discuss some of the myths regarding human trafficking. So I'm going to ask you some questions and let you kind of provide context and clarity around them to better help us to share with others as well, to create greater impact. And also, you know, I would encourage our listeners, when you hear about this, one of the things that always comes back to me is that this isn't about somebody somewhere outside of your area. It's not about everyone else. This can actually happen to any one of us in some way, shape or form. So myth one, human trafficking is always or usually a violent crime. Yeah, this is a good one. So a lot of people think that you have to have that physical violence or even, you know, physically restraining people to be considered human trafficking. Um, And we actually look for one of three elements, force, fraud, or coercion. So there could be elements of force where someone is maybe, maybe it is violent. Maybe somebody is physically being assaulted or abused in some way, but it doesn't have to be. There could also be elements of fraud. People, you know, responding to a job, job ad. Maybe, you know, I took a job as a waitress and it turns out now I have to strip or perform sex acts in a club. That's not what I agreed on. Someone, you know, tricked me into that or there was a fraudulent um, element or coercion, which is a little harder sometimes to see. It may not leave physical marks like abuse may um, leave, but that manipulation and threatening. um, So that's how you may see someone and, you know, assume that they're not in a situation because they're not being beat up or yelled at, et cetera. But that control, um, psychological manipulation, you can just give someone a look and and that can be intimidating, right? So those are some of the other elements that we can see um, that don't have to just be violence. Often, all three may be present, but they don't have to be. What about this one? All human trafficking involves commercial sex. Yeah, that's another big one, too. We, we hear a lot about sex trafficking. A lot of our movies yes. portray that. Um, when in reality, it, there could be even more labor trafficking that's actually occurring. And if you look at our state and even our county, there's a lot of agriculture in, agri- agricultural industry, yeah. hospitality industry. I mean, even globally, just thinking about the number of or the, the demand for cheap free labor, um, you know, discounted items that are produced, you know, at the expense of of someone else behind the scenes working. I think the other thing we see in the movies, and uh, you can tell us if it's true or not true, is that traffickers target victims they don't know. Oh, yes. The stranger danger kind of concept that we (laughs) used to teach our kids. Hopefully, you know, don't use that anymore because just like with child abuse, um, you know, we see where the traffickers actually do either know the victim or take the time to get to know them. So, you know, I always say it's it's an investment process, the time that it takes to really build rapport, build relationship. Um, Those traffickers are investing it in that because it's worth it to them in the long run. It's a lot harder to walk away from someone that you feel like you owe them something, they helped you out, they care for you, than it is for a stranger that just picks you up and throws you in a van and drives away. So it's worth it to them to put in that time. And that's how it can come close to home, right? Absolutely. And think about online too, how that can build through the online world as well. Wow. 
What about uh, the other thing you hear all the time, and that is that victims are always from other countries outside of the United States? Yeah, I mean, certainly we do have some that are coming here from other countries, but if you look at the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is kind of like our a really good data set looking at calls coming in, and for Florida, um, the data so far showed that it's almost 50-50 in terms of U.S. citizens versus those from other countries. Again, the data is not perfect. There could be a lot of underreporting from those coming from other countries as well, but we do see people that are born and raised in Palm Beach County that experience trafficking. And we kind of talked about this in uh, one of the questions I asked or one of the myths that I presented, but maybe we can expand on it a little bit. And that is traffickers are always strangers to the victims. Yeah. So, I mean, we have what's called familial trafficking, where family members will be involved in trafficking their own children or family members. So we don't like to think of that. It happens more common than than people would like to realize. Certainly it can pop up through foster care, but also kids in the community that maybe weren't identified and put into foster care that maybe should have been as well. And you brought up in that answer or that explanation kids. So when you, when you talk about kids and we talk about victims, what, are they always children? And if they're children, what are we talking about? What ages? It doesn't necessarily have to be youth, um, but some adults that get identified, maybe it began as a youth and they weren't identified until adulthood. So sometimes it's hard to get solid data on that sometimes because it really kind of can vary. Um, but certainly when you look at young people, they're very vulnerable. They're very, um, you know, there's certain things they're looking for, acceptance, love, that, that really can make them uniquely uh, vulnerable, but also just not being aware. And so that's why, you know, the state of Florida was the first state in the nation to require human trafficking education for every age group, uh, every grade level. And at, at the coalition, we're one of the approved um, for the school district to go in and educate. And that's why it's so important because you could have a young person or an adult who's being groomed and doesn't even realize it until they get that education and can kind of see, okay, <laughs> I've heard about this. I, I kind of see what's happening here. Wow. So uh, I hate to you know, take us off track, but too much. But at the same time, I think that's a very important thing. So when you go back and you are educating in the schools, tell me more about what what would you be teaching uh, the third graders to look for and how to identify that this is happening to them? Yeah, so we um, focus on middle and high school. Okay. Um, so we, you know, elementary school is a little bit more about boundaries, healthy relationships, et cetera. Okay. So the conversation is a little different, still preventing human trafficking. But in middle and high school, we really talk about what is human trafficking? What are the types? Um, you know, we ask them to think about what are things that you want or need right now that you can't get. That's a vulnerability a trafficker can prey on, whether it's uh. material need, emotional need. And then we talk through with them, you know, what are healthy places that you could instead, you know, you want money to buy a new phone. What's a healthy way we could get that versus relying on someone you just know on the internet to provide you that. Right. So a lot of, you know, kind of talking through that, helping them to self-identify and then discussing what that grooming process can look like. Does part of that conversation help people to help their friends? Absolutely. And we talk about that. Your friend may not see what's happening, but as you as the outsider looking in, that's why it's up to all of us to kind of be the eyes and ears and to go to that trusted adult. We can't just assume that that young person, our friend, you know, is, is recognizing what's taking place. Wow. This one you see in the movies as well. And that is that human trafficking victims are always kept in restraints. Yeah, definitely. Um, Not always the case. Again, kind of goes back to that force, fraud, or coercion. Um, One of those elements is what we're looking for to show that it's a human trafficking case. And, you know, someone could be walking down the street with a cell phone, and you never think that 
someone's controlling them behind the scenes. But again, those threats, manipulation can be so powerful to prevent anyone from just walking away from that situation. Wow. You know, you mentioned that Florida was one of the first states to require education for students. We also are, as you know, and uh, many of our listeners know, is a state that requires education for doctors. And so that's something that I have done a couple of times, definitely need to keep learning so I can bring more and better information to my uh, colleagues. But one of the things I have found that all of us want desperately to know is how to better be able to identify a victim if they're in our office. What advice would you give us? Absolutely. So the challenge with this issue of human trafficking is that it can look very different. Sex trafficking can look very different from labor trafficking and and different demographics can present in different ways. You want to look for elements of control. If someone is controlling the interaction that you're trying to have with that individual, Um, sometimes this can be uh, really challenging if you've got someone that's like interpreting or where you don't speak the same language. And we often will just rely on the person they're with and just assume that that's grandma or mom or whoever. Not always the case. So if possible, be able to reach out to people that you know that that can you can trust to do that. Um, you know, maybe you're working with someone who's not aware of they can't give you an address of where they live. They're unaware. They're they didn't realize they're in Palm Beach County. They might have been moved around. You know, against their will or their knowledge. Obviously, looking for signs of abuse, things like that. And, and you know, you're you're up personal. You're seeing things like maybe when we train dental staff, we say you know you're looking at the neck and the ear and things that maybe another professional would not necessarily have access to. Looking for signs of abuse in those areas, um, and also looking for signs of branding marks as well. Some traffickers will force a tattoo on the individual to kind of mark that property. And so that's something that could be, I mean, I've had nurses tell me it was up in the hairline, it was on the back of the neck. Sometimes it's a little bit more hidden um, than others. And if you have a situation where you feel like maybe that's something you're, you're looking at, you can just casually ask, you know, hey, what's the story behind, you know, that tattoo? And just watch how they respond. Do they kind of hide it? Do they look fearful? Even with any of your questioning, your intake paperwork, et cetera, what's kind of the interaction like? Are they avoiding eye contact? Do they, let's say you kind of get to the point where you see it is maybe um, human trafficking and you mentioned law enforcement. Do they freak out? What's their reaction to that? Are they afraid of being arrested or being deported, et cetera? So it's it's really challenging. um, And we always tell everyone to be sure to not put yourself or that individual in danger. So sometimes the best thing you, sometimes the safest option is maybe to observe and then make the report. And, you know, sometimes in that interaction, um, it could put yourself or the individual at risk. Uh, Several, many years ago, I worked in another state and a doctor had just gotten trained on human trafficking. And this individual, um, there was a a victim that came in with a male, female victim, male um, trafficker, was pacing throughout the lobby back and forth the whole time, insisted on being back there with the individual. And the medical staff said, you know, we... We have a policy. We can only take the individual back by themselves. Some places I've heard they'll they'll make up paperwork. You know, go fill this out while we take this individual back. Um, so thankfully, this doctor had just been trained and um, picked up on some of the indicators. Really thought something's going on. The controlling factor. The front desk staff saying he's freaking out the whole time. The victim's watching the clock, like as if she's going to get in trouble if she's you know longer than five minutes. So he was really smart and he found reasons to make her come back. She had, a, I mean, unfortunately for this case, she, she needed medical attention. So he found reasons to get her back in the office and over time built rapport with her. And then the last time she came in was able to have the FBI on the phone 
to work out a plan to get her out of the situation. And if that doesn't show you the power of what a difference education can make, you know, being creative, but not just rushing to, oh my gosh, I got to rescue this person today, but looking at and assessing and, you know, pulling in the authorities and um, really working, you know, at a, a safe <laughs> uh, pace as well. Well, you know, and you, you bring up a good point. Why would you not want to rescue them that day? Because that's what I hear the most often from people is that it, it doesn't make sense, April or Laura, that you are pretty certain you have a victim in front of you. Why would you let them continue through this process? Why would you not rescue them on the spot? So if they're under the age of 18, obviously we have the state mandated reporting. So that's a little easier where we just make the report and, you know, the authorities get involved. If they're over 18, it's a little bit more challenging because we can't necessarily force them to leave that situation. But we can be in a great position to provide resources. Um, so something that our coalition um, utilized a lot before COVID um, is we have lip balm that are labeled with the National Human Trafficking Hotline in Spanish, English, and Creole. And so it's kind of worded to help that person like self-identify. So it says something about like, do you feel like you're being tricked or forced to work, et cetera. Um, but the cool thing is the label can be removed. So if someone's in your office and you're suspecting, you're seeing the indicators, but maybe you've even asked them, you know, do you need help? Like, can I help you? And they're like, no, no, I'm fine, okay. All right, well, there's a national hotline in case you ever, whenever you're ready, if you ever need assistance, you know, here's the lip balm, here's the hotline. But the cool thing is when they, they can memorize the number save it in their phone, peel off the label. So by the time they get back to the trafficker, there's no pamphlet, nothing that's going to alert that person, the trafficker. Um, so we've, we've distributed those far and wide. Um, but that's really, I think, where you all can be at, at the front line as these professionals that may interact with these victims to plant that seed. I've had service providers tell me it may be a year, two years later that that person finally calls after they gave them their business card. It's a process. It takes a while, just like it's a process getting into human trafficking. Right. It's sometimes a process leaving, but we're letting them know, hey, there's people out there willing to work with you and, and assist you when you're ready. Wow. That's, a st that's incredible. So what do we do then? You mentioned a hotline. You mentioned a report. Can we get a little bit more specific? What do we do? if we identify or are even suspicious of someone being a victim? Absolutely, so um, I wanna mention the National Human Trafficking Hotline number um, because this is a number that anyone can call to report suspected um, human trafficking. So that number is 1-888-373-7888. Um, it's a 24-7 hotline number anywhere in the United States anyone can call. Um, to, to report, but it's also a number that those in human trafficking can call to self-report. So a great resource to give out. So if you have someone in the office, you know, and you start to see some of these indications, you can ask them if they need help. Um, if you say, are you being trafficked? They're probably not going to know what you're talking about. Right. A lot of them, you know, a lot of individuals don't like know what that language is. So um, it's kind of us to assess based on, you know, what we're seeing. Um, you can offer to call with them if they want assistance. If it's an emergency situation, you want to call 911, that's still going to be the fastest way to get a response there. Um, but if it's something where maybe they're not ready to call, um, you can just give them the number, let them know. Even if they don't want to connect with law enforcement, they can still call the national hotline and get connected to resources. So it's a great option. Um, there's a texting line for them to text in. They can go online to a chat session to, to you know reach out as well. Um, and the other piece is just making sure, so that's if someone is in your office and you suspect, um, and of course the DCF hot, child abuse hotline if it's a minor, 
but also making sure that your staff are trained on this and going through that training like you talked about because really anyone from front desk staff receptionist to those working directly um, when we train hotels even the you know person in the parking lot security guard everyone's seeing a piece and in that case I mentioned where they called the FBI like you know the nurse is back there working with the person but the receptionist is seeing the guy pacing back and forth right. that you know the nurse isn't oh seeing so really having everyone trained and educated um, is a huge step to make sure that we're not missing anything that's that's you know being presented in front of us. So let's say somebody's listening to this that's not in Florida and they do want to train their staff. What is the best way for them to go about doing that? So there's a lot of great resources on the National Human Trafficking um, Hotline's website, which I believe is humantraffickinghotline.org. Um, and it's hosted by Polaris Project. So they have on their trainings, PowerPoints, webinars, um, a lot of resources you can go on it and read reports, data. Um, that's kind of like our main national resource that we promote as well. But if anyone ever needs help being pointed in the right direction, feel free to reach out to our coalition. And if we know of a resource we can connect you, we're happy to do it. That's awesome. So let's go back to making that phone call. So we have someone in the office that we think might be a victim. So we make the call to the hotline. How soon will someone respond once we call the hotline? Do you have any idea how that works? Yeah, so if it's a minor um, and you're calling the child abuse hotline, they will often, well, first let me say we have a task force here in Palm Beach County. So the coalition that I'm with is you know education, prevention, outreach, et cetera, but we also have a human trafficking task force that is made up of law enforcement, service providers, those are the ones that are gonna respond, you know, bring that person out of the trafficking situation, get them connected, et cetera. So when you call the child abuse hotline for a minor, let's say, um, DCF will respond, but sometimes they will often reach out to our task force and sometimes co-respond as well. Um, and then if it's an adult and you call the national hotline, they often will also connect back down to our task force and respond um, with, you know, reach out, bring the individual out of that situation and connect them to resources. But sometimes as just like a community person making that phone call, there can sometimes be like a wait on the, you know, a hold, a wait when you're calling it in. Um, so that's why if it's an emergency, we definitely recommend calling 911. You can still call both numbers if you want, um, but 911 will still be the quickest way to get someone to respond to that situation. So the other question I get asked at uh, events where I, I present information is th they're afraid. A lot of us are afraid that maybe we're wrong. Maybe that person isn't a victim. It's just a very odd situation. And now we will be the bad guy that called in this phone number or called this phone number and it turns out it wasn't that at all. So what happens then? Will they know that we called it in? Is it anonymous? So you can call anonymously um, to the national hotline. And I've actually talked about this question with our law enforcement partners many times because we do hear that You've a lot. Heard it too. Yes. Um, it's, it's, you know, you're nervous. You're, maybe it's a newer topic for you and it's your first time encountering it. And, you know, there's concern. Obviously, it's minor. We don't have a choice. Even if it's suspected, you still call. Um, but our law enforcement partners tell us that they would rather, you know, have five calls that end up being nothing than have one incident that really was something and no one made the call and so I always encourage people listen like if you call and report that the hotline's not going to call you back and say you were wrong why'd you waste our time that our our law enforcement partners here in Palm Beach County tell me that they would much rather you know 
have us be proactive than have someone slip through the cracks. And when you call the hotline, you can describe kind of what you're seeing and they'll decide if that's something that they're going to respond to or, you know, accept and follow up on. So that pressure is not just on <laughs> on you. Okay, good. So I want to leave with some interesting data that maybe you'll know statistics on, but at least give us a general idea of how successful this whole project has been. I know it's been huge for you, for all of us, for anyone who has been a victim is now a survivor, but how many victims are rescued? It's, yeah, it's the data from the National Human Trafficking Hotline um, looking at, they've been around since I believe it was 2007. They've had over 40,000 cases that were reported and a case could have multiple survivors, you know, involved in it. Um, for Florida, they report 5,384 cases that resulted in about 7,000 individuals that they believed. But the data only gets us so far. So this is only capturing, you know, what's being reported to that particular hotline. Um, there's a lot of individuals that may get out of the situation that, you know, were not captured in that data. And there's a lot of individuals that unfortunately don't get out of that situation. And there's a lot of reasons why they may not, you know, come forward or, or be identified. Um, but certainly in Florida, um, we've just seen a lot of success through our local task force who, you know, over the past couple years have really been proactive in identifying, engaging, arresting uh, the perpetrators, and then connecting survivors um, to services. And I think Florida is really a leader um, and Palm Beach County is a leader for our state um, when it comes to this issue. Yes, you guys are doing a fabulous job. The whole team, I've had a chance to meet them at different events and I'm, I never leave an event without being in tears at least once. Then <laughs> we did the job, right? <laughs> exactly, right. So I think the one thing that we all are concerned about when we hear about this type of information is why aren't there more survivors? Is it our fault? Is it my fault as much as anyone else's? And, and I guess a better way to end it would be why aren't there more and how can we do a better job to make that number change so it's a really complex kind of question there's a lot of reasons why someone may not be identified um, if you look at the individual in the situation there's a lot of fear could be fear of the unknown fear of not being believed being arrested being deported you know retaliation from the trafficker um, one of the industries that I work in is with disabilities, so people with disabilities who um, you know, are being trafficked. There's high rates of victimization for that population. And in those cases, you may have a caregiver who's the perpetrator. And so you know, that individual may be afraid to report, if I'm not removed from that caregiver's care, you know, I could be at more risk. Um, they may have language barriers or cultural barriers that prevent them. So maybe they pass through your office, but you weren't able really to communicate with them. And, you know, so it was a little challenging to really understand what's going on. But then the awareness side, the piece that we all work in, too, is really um, we've come a long way. There's still more to, more to go. But these, you know, mandated trainings like what you're seeing for this industry um, have really helped, um, I, you know, increase that um, awareness and identification. And I really think, you know, to continue on that track, um, invite anyone who's listening to attend our monthly coalition meetings because this is not a one-time conversation. The issue's always changing. There's always something we're all learning. Um, but at least if you come, you know, to our monthly meetings, we have guest speakers from all different sectors of this industry that talk and continue to educate us. And it's a great way to get connected, learn what to do, how to be involved, and just be alongside others with similar passions. Yes. And they help you to realize that it's, it's right next to you. It's hidden in plain sight. And uh, that it's just the, it's sad, 
But at the same time, it's it's amazing to finally have my eyes open and be a part of it. What else can people do? So education, awareness, sure. share the story with their teams, help to be able to identify victims in the chair. But uh, before you, and by the chair, I mean in our exam chairs. <laughs> <laughs> but Laura, before you leave us today, anything else that you can tell us that we can do to be more involved or just any parting words that you have for our listeners? Sure. Um, if you want, you know, volunteer opportunities through our coalition. We do. We're still pretty remote, but we're looking at stuff for the fall. So we have room to, for people to get involved, volunteer, join a committee. I'm really excited for kind of looking at the next year ahead. Um, and, you know, whether that be speaking, you know, becoming trained to be a speaker to get the education out there or just helping us get into new industries and, and connections and agencies and businesses to bring this education. Um, so really just thankful for you and for bringing this, you know, put spotlighting on this. Um, and I guess, you know, kind of the takeaway message is that there there's to have hope that there's so much that we can do I know it's easy to be overwhelmed with this topic but there's a lot of us here um, working in this issue that are willing to have you join us come alongside us get involved and you know together we'll continue to work to um, you know make human trafficking less and less here in Palm Beach County Thank you. Thank you for being a part of this. Thank you for all you do and and for joining us and uh, sharing this with our listeners Laura Thank you so much. Before neural lenses, I always had eye strain, eye dryness, eye fatigue, moderate to severe headaches. I had to take prescription medication. It was to the point where my kids, they'd want me to sit down and color or read them books. And I couldn't. I couldn't do nothing. When I got my neural lenses, my headache went away. I wasn't taking Tylenol anymore. Can't explain it, but it worked. I would pay double for my neural lenses because I can't go a day without them. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Opt In with Dr. April Jasper, 